dreaming It's remains when we need to talk bad about my boss Take a break from work today is no total loss All right, all right. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this middle of March episode of the South Dakota Game Fish and Parks Podcast and Blast. I'm your host, Chris Hall. We got a cool new feature that we're starting with this podcast. We are going to interview all our regional and area fish managers and talk about spring, summer, and fall fishing in the upcoming open water fishing season. I know around Pier and Chamberlain with the open water, it's kind of started and fish are biting. But getting lots of questions about uh, what our big lakes and destinations are are um, looking like for spring and uh, in the upcoming season. So we're going to start out with our guys Jason Sorensen and Chris Longhenry down out of the Chamberlain office, and that that'll be this week. And then uh, going to hit the Lake Sharp in Upper Missouri, uh, Wahi in that area, maybe in the next few days. And then we'll probably head out west and talk to Jake Davis about uh, western South Dakota Black Hills fishing. And then probably finish up with Mark Ermer up in the northeast and uh, Todd St. Solver. No, sorry, Dave Lucchese. Sorry, Dave. Uh, Hit Dave Lucchese and talk about the southeast. But uh, we're going to talk about all of them. We're going to talk all things fishing and bait and sciencey stuff and fishing stuff. So that should be cool. I will start that today. But uh, just a couple other things going on. We got the snow goose migration going through, and just be aware that there is a highly pathogenic avian influenza outbreak going through with some wild birds. So we're asking if uh, anybody sees any sorts of uh, dead waterfowl that have unknown causes and just dead birds, uh, really, in general, to report those to your local conservation officer or your regional offices or whatever. And uh, we're asking people just to be aware of that. Got a news release on the website if you want to check that out for some more information. Um, kind of happens every few years, and it, it really affects our some wild bird populations, but nothing to the to the you know nothing to the effect or the you know drastic where it's going to decrease populations. But what it really hurts is our domestic turkey and chicken and um, you know, poultry raisers and stuff. So just something that's going through. So be aware. I know a lot of people have been getting a lot of reports. So just be aware of that. Um, we're not telling snow goose hunters to take any precautions other than our normal, you know, if you shoot them, take them home, clean them, cook them to the right temperature, do all that stuff. So uh, just be aware of that. If you're seeing any, you know, dead waterfall in particular that you can report those and uh, just be aware. Uh, you're our eyes and ears out on the ground, so we appreciate that. So I guess we'll uh, kick it off with Chris Longhenry and Jason Sorensen out of our Chamberlain Fisheries office. Here we go. Welcome to another episode of the South Dakota Game Fishing Parks Podcast and Blast. I'm in beautiful, not-so-sunny Chamberlain today, but uh, one of the best places, in my opinion, to be around. Lots of stuff going on if you like to hunt and fish, do all that stuff. But I'm with a couple of super smart 
intelligent, good-looking dudes. A uh, couple of fisheries guys out of the Chamberlain office. I got Chris Longhenry, Jason Sorensen. Uh, boys, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having us. Yep, first, first of all, give me your titles. Let's start with you, Longhenry. All right. I'm the area fishery supervisor in the Chamberlain office. Um, I've been here since 2008. Um, spent a little bit of time up in Pier and then moved back down in 2011. Right. So area fisheries supervisor, does that mean you're a desk jockey or you get out in the field a little bit and get to play anyway? So. I, I still get out once in a while, but yeah, I definitely spend a little more time at the desk than I used to. Sorensen, what's your, uh, what's your title? I'm a fisheries biologist here in the Chamberlain office. Started out as a seasonal employee way back when. I'm one of the old guys now. Right. Uh, been here in Chamberlain since 1995, um, and I do not sit behind the desk a whole <laughs> lot anymore. It seems like we're always out in the field doing something, um, but spend plenty of time at the desk also. Right. Before we get into like the fishing outlook and stuff, I get questions, not necessarily just about fisheries biologists, but even like deer biologists and stuff. During the winter, what are you guys doing? Um. A lot of times we spend a lot of our, our time looking at, at the data, looking at all the numbers that we collected over the summer. and So we come up with our recommendations, um, write reports, um, figure out our plan for the next year, and then, then we always have a bunch of meetings to go over our, over our results and, and talk about what, we, what we're seeing. Sure. What's, you know, and what kind of projects, you know, you're talking about collecting data and stuff, what kind of projects do you guys do on a regular basis? Do you have anything like maybe interesting or new? You know, I know at one point, you know, people were asking, are they actually tagging gizzard chat and trying to figure out? I mean, that's the kind of the stuff that we're talking about, right? I mean, anything from net and walleyes to bait surveys to all that stuff. And then you're crashing that data in the winter, huh? Yep. So, so we collect a lot of what we call our standard data. You know, we're monitoring the populations, making sure everything's good with growth, um, recruitment. That's the number of fish coming in each year. Um, and then uh, abundance, too. And so, so we have that standard monitoring that we do on, on, on the river and then a number of lakes in, in the area. And then we also have uh, our, our special projects. Um, right now we have one going on down at... Lewis and Clark Lake, where we have, we're working with the University of Nebraska, and we're we have a bunch of tagged walleyes, and we have receivers out there, so we can monitor their distribution throughout the season, seasons, and um, look at how uh, different water flow and di different things change where these fish are hanging out in the reservoir. Cool. And and Jason, you're talking about he's talking about collecting data. Are you putting out nets? How, how are you collecting that, you know, data? What, what are you doing? For our standard surveys, we have a lot of different things that we do. Um, it could be electrofishing uh, for bass, looking at abundance and size structure of the population. Uh, it could be seining to index our prey species and our age zero game fish or gill nets even. To, that's where we get a lot of our information about our adult fish. So. Sure. And those are always the calls that we get. Why are they netting? You know, why are there nets out at Joe Creek or whatever? It's like, okay, you know, I'll make a call and generally call one of you guys and say, okay, what are we doing? So let's let's get into kind of a general outlook. Um, 
We'll start with you know the, the Missouri River system and those three reservoirs. You guys are so so we work on Francis Case, Lewis and Clark, and then we do some work down below Gavin's Point Dam on the Missouri River. Okay. So yeah, let's just talk about those lakes and, and what we're looking at going into the spring of this year. Okay. Uh, I can talk a little bit about Lake Francis Case. Um, <clears throat> from our surveys, it looks like our walleye population was maybe down slightly from what it was the year before. Um, but the average size fish and the overall health of the fish looks really good. Um, so there's some nice fish for the anglers to, to target out there. Um, in terms of, you know, the bite, it typically picks up here in Chamberlain right away after the ice goes out. Um, we have gizzard shad as a primary forage species. They don't tolerate cold water real well, so we're going to lose a lot of our small shad over the winter. So those fish don't have a lot of prey available right away when the ice comes off. Um, so we see pretty good catch rates in April and May, even into June. And uh, towards the end of June, we have a new hatch of gizzard shad coming on, so the bite typically tails off once once your bait is competing with millions of gizzard shad right. out there. You see catch rates drop off a little bit. Sure. What about uh, a little further south? Well, um, Lewis and Clark, the walleye population, according to our, our surveys, is is down. Um, Lewis and Clark Lake is kind of a it's a tough one to to get a good handle on what's going on down there. Um, there's a whole long stretch of riverine area from um, Springfield or Santee all the way up to Pickstown, and and our standard surveys don't 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 go in that area, and um, so our our standard surveys consist of gillnets down in the lake. Well, our our gillnets have had low numbers pretty much since 2011, that that big water year that we had, and um, so. Right now, it looks like the populations are low. However, we've been getting reports the last few years of anglers having good success, you know, further out, you know, where we aren't sampling. Sure. And so that that's kind of one of the reasons we we're moving forward with that that uh, um, seasonal distribution project is so we can get a handle on you know what where these fish are during different times of the year and you know do we have fish that are just staying in the river now. You know, maybe something's changed since the flood. Sure. But um, so it, it's tough to say. I'd expect we, we're going to have probably similar similar fishing success as we had last year. I think there's going to be some guys that are doing well, you know, from Santee on up to Fort Randall Dam. But then th there's also those guys that have it figured out and, and can find the fish in the lake too. Hmm. That, that – area down there and, and Jason I got to spend a little bit of time with you chasing paddlefish but we'll talk about that later you know even going to school down in Vermilion and, and trying to figure out you know being a, a guy who loves the fish like trying to figure out the river and then going up above the dam and just trying to figure out whether it was fishing or, or duck hunting and stuff up there I I mean you almost have to live there to know what the heck's going on and have to be looking at that river every day I mean, the time that I spent with you out on the boat and we're shooting up these channels and I'm like, you sure you know where we're going? Because, we're, you know, I have no idea what direction we're going at this point. Does that, that chunk of the river, are there a bunch of people that fish that? And I mean, I'm sure there are, but it's just, it's really interesting. It's so much different than anything else, any other fishery or any other thing like in South Dakota. 
Yeah, so last spring when we were tagging fish, I was amazed at the number of boats that were actually out fishing, and they were telling telling us that they were catching them, and it was it was kind of surprising because I hadn't been down there that up in the in the shoots or the the delta that time of year before. So it was last year there was quite a few boats getting after them. Yeah, those local people down there really know where the holes are at, right. and where they need to go to get to them, and they're. They're not so much your diehard walleye or sauger fishermen. They're opportunistic. Right. They'll fish for walleye when they're there, and when the, there's not walleye in the holes, they're fishing for catfish or whatever. Right. Whatever bites. So. That I mean, it just change, but it changes so much too. I mean that you know, that sand and silt and everything just kind of shifting around. Um, I know when when I was paddle fishing with you, I was just waiting for okay, we're gonna get stuck here. We're gonna be here all day. You know, or a day and a half, just kind of standing around, going, "How do we get this thing out of here?" But, it I mean, does it, happen. Yeah, it, it didn't happen when I was there with Swanson. That's so. why we brought you along. Right. Push us up. <laughs> You've spawned walleyes with me. You know, I'm not that much of good help. So, so you know, obviously those those two main stem reservoirs are probably your best known fisheries in this area. What about a couple of unknowns or or a couple that maybe? You go, God, why, why don't people fish those more? Or, or you know, I, I don't want, to, want you to give up any secrets for anybody to have, you, have them be mad at you. But just, like, maybe places where, or, or spots like that, like that area down there, that kind of braided river system, places that don't maybe get the attention that maybe they could. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be for walleyes, just any kind of fish. Well, I think... It's maybe not so much of a secret, but like for walleyes, we have some small impoundments in the in the area here that, and I'm not going to name names because I don't want to give anybody right. secret holes away. But there's some awful nice fish that come out of some of these small waters, that, right. and the people that are local and and know about it, they target those and, and have good success. But yeah, we we have some really good largemouth bass fishing in the you know, southwest of here, and you know it. It seems like there's not a lot of people that that utilize those those fisheries, but the people that do are pretty diehard and, and they they care a lot about them. So right. so I I don't want to name names yeah, either, right. otherwise I might get <laughs> Ryan out of town. Do you guys talk to a lot of po- uh, folks from the public that utilize some of those tools that we have on the website, like the stocking reports and some of that stuff, and get people asking you questions and stuff? Because I, I do. and I, I mean, I'm not a biologist, obviously, but I have people talking to me, uh, and I think it seems like that's increasing with, you know, the things like Onyx and all the other stuff. That, And it doesn't surprise me that when I look at our, like, the metrics for our website and stuff, those pages get looked at a lot. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of people that utilize that and a lot of people that ask us personally, right. you know, what did you see in your nets and where, where should I go fishing? It's funny you ask that because just today I was visiting with a gentleman that wanted to know of any perch fisheries in the area that that I might know about. He says, I I look at what you guys have online, but he said, I want to find something that's not out there for everybody All else right, to see. Right, yeah, he, he wants, wants the inside scoop, you know. But I, I always tell people, I said, I can't give you the exactly because that would be like asking somebody that works at lottery for the winning ticket, yeah. right? <laughs> right. Um, well, and I appreciate that because, you know, I, I fish down in this country a lot, and I rarely fish the river, and it's those smaller impoundments and stuff. And they do get, they do get you know, some, fair, some of them get fairly high pressure, but they always seem to put out fish. I mean, what is it about some, 
some of these, and not just in your area in general, but you see these small impoundments, and they get hit hard, especially in the winter. Now, in the summertime, I go out there, and I'm usually the only one there um, getting chiggers and, you know, bee stings and sunburn. But, you know, how, how, how can some of those, what is it about them that they just seem to kind of reproduce and reproduce, and in one year it's perch, and then, you know, you'll see four or five years later it's that same impoundment's crappies. And then there's always those bluegills mixed in. I mean, is it? It seems like they're just crazy fertile. Like they do a really good job. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's just the balance between quality habitat and, and like you said, you know, the the they're fertile. They're getting enough nutrients in, but not too much where they're they're starting to get oxygen problems, which you know, either in the winter or the summer, that can really limit your fisheries. But yeah, it's just you know. A lot of those impoundments have that right balance between the amount of nutrients coming in, but being able to you know handle that. Right. What any concerns on these impoundments down in this area about low water, like just water depth, and you know we're in drought for. Yeah, um, droughts can be hard on these these impoundments. Um, if you start getting too low, um, obviously you know you have less water, less buffering for temperature or low oxygen levels in the summer. Um, right now our, our impoundments are looking pretty good, but we, we, we don't want another dry year though. Right. We could start seeing some problems. Yeah. You know, I hit a few of the grassland ponds that I kind of walk into or kind of off the beaten path and a couple of them are in really tough shape. I mean, a couple of, you know, maybe two, three feet of white water underneath the ice where last year it was six, seven. So. But most of them seem, I mean, they're down, but I've seen them lower since I've been here, I guess. So. Yeah, and, you know, after, you know, if you do end up with the kill and then it fills up again, you're going to have that boom of productivity. Right. And it'll mm -hmm. bounce back quickly as long as there, there's some fish left in there. Right. Yeah, so we're going to need the coordinates for those. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you give me your coordinates, I'll give you mine. <laughs> What's, um, we, can, we can talk about, well, we could stay on walleyes, and, and Chris, you actually touched on this, but you're talking about, you know, that, that spring bite, and, and, you know, like right now even, I know there's there's guys, especially up in that pier area, fishing the tail race and, and down where they can safely boat, and it seems like, you know, that fishing's good, but just let's let's hit about those, those areas, you know, like April, um, you know, do those fish, they start seeming to, and I don't know if it's access or not, but those fish are pretty accessible from shore or from, from a boat, obviously. But the bite is, you know, on fire, and that's when everybody wants to catch fish, right? And, and Jason, I think you touched on, you know, that these are gizzard shad eating fish, and, and there's not many gizzard shad. Um, so talk about going into spring and, and maybe even the spawn and then, um, you know, where people can should or maybe, you know, what should they be looking for as far as, you know, depths and all that kind of stuff, so. Yeah, so I mean, right away when the ice comes out, those fish are typically fairly deep, or a little deeper than they would be later in the year, because the water's warmer at the deeper depths when, when it's ice, right. ice cold like that. And so, you know, you're looking at channel edges, break lines, and probably fishing, at least in the, this area, anywhere from 10 to 25, 30 feet deep. Mm -hmm. um, then as the water starts to warm up and you move closer to the spawn, those fish are going to start moving up 
you know, and the male fish usually go first and they're up shallow and they're waiting for the females to move in to spawn. And females, of course, they move in and out. They'll come in, lay some eggs, move back out, come in, lay some more eggs, move back out until they're done spawning. But um, once those fish start moving in shallow to spawn, that's when the shore fishing really gets good. And that's when you'll come out here in the evening around Chamberlain and see the shoreline just lined with people right. everywhere. And, and everybody's catching fish. And, it, um, and then, of course, after those fish spawn, they're going to start to disperse back out throughout the reservoir. Um, years of tagging data from way back when has shown us that, you know, kind of in the fall, those fish move up to the upper end of the lake and they'll stage there all winter. They spawn in the spring and then they start to disperse. And so a lot of them will go south and start heading down towards the, the middle of the reservoir. We used to tag a lot of fish here in Chamberlain and they'd initially get caught right here in town. Then they get caught, you know, from here to Elm Creek and then down from Elm Creek to Snake Creek to Black Creek. And they would they would hold up in about the middle of the reservoir there. So. Sure. Are those fish, are they moving up because of food availability or is it spawning habitat or why, why do they make that move, do you think, or do you know? It, it seems to be when the water in the fall cools down and gets to be about that spawning temperature, they, it's almost like a seems like a false spawning run I'm right not, I, I'm not certain that's what it is but that's when they seem to start moving up and and they'll stay there all winter and stage there so you know this area sees a pretty good bite in the fall too right. as do some other you know we got fish throughout the reservoir they don't all follow right. that pattern and so you'll see a good bite in the fall about everywhere too but uh, typically on the lower end of the lake in the spring it's it's pretty pretty quiet for the most part and people are catching a few fish but um, that really picks up later in May hmm. yeah I guess I never you know I always thought that those fish you know, fishing like a tail race in pier you know that fall is just the first few years I moved to pier was unbelievable because they were running so much water and I just always assumed well the foods here the currents here the fish are here but you know some of those old timers are like yeah, it's kind of like that every fall they kind of seem to that population of fish seems to increase dramatically, you know, from pier down. And this year, I know, you know, Joe Crick in, in West Bend, God, the fall fishing was amazing. You'd go down there, and there'd be 50 boats at the launch, and you're like, what in the heck? You know, normally it's three or four boats, and guys all grumbling about, you know, picked one off here, picked one off there. So, well, that's kind of interesting that I guess that, you know, I always knew there was a movement, but I just assumed it was because of food or a gizzard shad run or something, you know. It probably has, the catch rates have, you know, the food availability has more of an impact on the catch rates. Sure. Because, and, and I don't know if it's water temperature that sends them back throughout the lake or, but it seems like about the middle, of, by the time we get into the June, early to middle of June, there's a good bite the entire length of the reservoir. Right. And then, then you hit those dog days, um, you know, and, and those fish, they're sliding deeper probably because of temperatures. Is, I mean, that gizzard shad, the availability, is that, does that have as much to do with it as those fish sliding deep and kind of seeming to shut down almost? Or? Well, walleyes are kind of a creature of habit. Uh, when you find their food, you find walleyes. Right. So the shad are shallow for a good, good while there, and people are fishing real shallow. And then as the bait fish start to move deeper, so do the, so do the game fish. Sure. It's not just walleyes, it's bass and catfish. And, but you'll see, you know, school, you know, you've fished for white bass. You see schools of white bass pushing right. schools of shad up to the surface. Right. Um, when you're casting for white bass, you'll catch a walleye too. Or, oh, yeah. 
you know, they're out there chasing them around too. And talking, brought up white bass, you know, when I moved to Pier, God, that was, you know, that was spring, that was a party, you know, people, there were people, whether they wanted to catch them or not, they were out there catching them, beating up on them. And now they're fairly scarce. Uh, you know, I think we had one day on Oahe where we really beat them up one day this year, but you know, down on Sharp, like Farm Island and stuff, catch a few here and there. Any idea what happened to those? I mean, just I'm going off script, so they both gave me a dirty look. Just so you know. <laughs> um, I I think uh, the white bass have been hit a few times by it's a columnaris bacteria, and so they, there's been a few die-offs in the you know in the last ten years that that's really kind of kept their numbers down. I'm I'm not sure what's going on with them now. That's that's the peers up peer sure. offices. <laughs> way, but. I can tell you that, uh, you know, we had the NWT tournament here in Chamberlain last spring, mm -hmm. and, and a lot of those anglers that were in that tournament said they were catching a lot of white bass. Um, they sure. said none of them were real big. So I think we right. have, you know, and I think we've seen this in some of our sampling. We have a pretty good year class of white bass out there that, there that are 10 to 12 inches long. Sure. It, and it's, it's interesting, you know, I went to school at UND and spent – well, basically almost flunked out of UND because of Devil's Lake, and it was small then. Um, but a couple times we'd find, in the winter, we'd find these old-timers, and they'd just be pounding those white bass through the ice up there, and they're giant. And you think about those white bass and how aggressive they are in the fall or in the spring, you know, and these guys are fishing like dead minnows right on the bottom, and, you know, he's catching these giant white bass, and I just, I just saw some some TV where there's some guides up on the Devil's Lake area where they're actually targeting them now again. And the way they have to fish them is so different from fishing, you know, perch and walleyes because they're, they're just a different fish in the winter. And, you know, for years, those, you know, the locals always just kind of thought they'd, you find one and they're all in a big ball somewhere, you know, and you catch a million of them. And it, it's just, it, it's a cool fish that, that people, you know, love to hate. But in the spring when they're really biting, man, it brings out people probably just as much as the walleyes do because you can catch them on a bobber and, you know, they fight and the kids can fight them. And so it's just kind of interesting. So what's, um, talked about fish movements. What have we seen, have you guys seen on like the fisheries effects on like with zebra mussels on in anything? Have you seen anything so far, Is it, you know, down at Lewis and Clark, obviously it's been a problem for how many years? Yeah, we, we first found the, the first zebra mussel in 14, and that was just a single adult. Right. And then it was the next year when we found that we had a reproducing population. So they've been down there for, for a number of years now. And, you know, we, we can't really say that there's been any impact to the walleye um, population. One thing that we can say is um, there's certain times of the year when you go down there, and I've never seen the water clear. Right. Like, Lewis and Clark is not known as a clear lake, and there's times when you can see the bottom in seven feet of water. And so, you know, that, that's probably going to have maybe um, minor in, impacts, like where the fish are, you know, just based on the amount of light that's getting down there. But as far as impacts to the population, um, it's really a tough one to, to crack. Um, there's so many different factors that play in and affect you know fish numbers and, and recruitment so it's right now we we don't have anything that says right. they've done anything have you seen anything jason like when you fish changing the way you fish or anything like you know you see on the great lakes 
these guys having to use switching the way they fish because there's a million zebra mussels and it rips your line up and stuff. I mean, you think we'll ever get to that point just because it's such a different. I haven't really noticed that. No, I uh, haven't really changed the way you fish or anything. Um, there are times where, you know, a bait will hit bottom and you'll hook a clump of zebra mussels and, right. and pull it up. Or if you pull up a stick or a beer can or any, right. anything, it's full of zebra mussels, you know. So, so there is that, um, but haven't really noticed any major impacts as of yet. Right. It, it is interesting. I, we fished out of West Bend a few times this year, and you know, flat calm day in July, and got my kid out there, and she's with one of her buddies, and we, you know, the weed lines, flat calm. You can see that weed line, and it, it's July and nine feet of water, and we're fishing those weed lines and catching walleyes, and the water is just gin clear. I'm like, no way, you know, that should never happen, one. And two, my daughter, first thing, she's 12, she's like, well, it's zebra mussels. And I said, this weed bed has always been out here, you know, in these spots. It always, you know, comes out this far. But, yeah, you're right. I, it seemed like the water is a lot clearer, but it was also a flat, calm day. And so, you know, you always get those questions. It's like, God, it's probably too early to tell. And, you know, you got this huge reservoir. And, there's places where I don't know if the zebra mussel could grow other on than a shoe or a boot or a can or something. Yeah. So it, it definitely clears the water up, which would will probably cause the vegetation to grow mm -hmm. in deeper depths. And, uh, but I know uh well, never mind, that thought went out right my head. <laughs> <laughs> what about um underutilized species i know you know we've been talking about walleyes and we brought up catfish but what about you know the the smallmouth fisheries down here especially on the river for you guys what do you see in there we see a you know that there's a small contingent of anglers that target smallmouth and they're die hard at it and they they do well at it and there's some really nice smallmouth to be caught out there um we just don't have a lot of people that that typically target them right um we get a lot of incidental catches by sure. by other anglers, but um, so yeah, definitely underutilized as are the the white bass, like we were talking mm -hmm. about. But but good fishing if you if you like to fish for, for right. bass. It, it seems like nothing brings out a people to a commission meeting if we start messing around with smallmouth and smallmouth regulations, and you know some people like, ah, take them all, and then you know then you get those. That, that crew to show up and go, God, you know, there's room enough for both, you know, so it's always interesting. What about, like, catfish fisheries? You know, we, we've moved around some of those, you know, targeting blue cats and some of that stuff, and, and uh, you know, those catfish it, it are definitely underutilized and probably underappreciated, but, you know, you catch them in the spring, those fish move out deep, and are they targeting gizzard shad and everything, too, or? So, I don't... I'm sure there's some that are out targeting gizzard shad, but um, that, that's my kid's favorite thing to do is to go up into a little creek and, and put some night crawlers on the bottom. And, and so we're, we're catching catfish all summer long in four or five feet of water or less. Right. So I, I think there's catfish throughout the reservoir. Um, they're, they're a very opportunistic feeder. They'll, they'll eat whatever's there, right. insects, um, dead fish, live fish. If they can get a hold of it, they're going to eat it. Right. And, I, and I think, you know, I learned this from one of our former co colleagues, Gino Adams, that, you know, I, I tried to take my daughter out a couple times catfishing uh, on Oahe, and 
he, he's like, you're fishing too deep. And I said, dude, I was in 10, 12 feet of water. And he's like, got to go back, you know, go back further. And, you know, for me, it seems like, God, that would be a, a, a trip maker if people were just camping and, and, you know, those are easily accessible. And, guy, you don't even need a boat or, an, or a big boat for sure to get back in there and, and at least have a half a day, a, a ton of fun. And, yeah, it, it's a blast. Good numbers of fish, anywhere from 16 inches up to 24, 25 inch fish. You know, they, right. Every size is out there. Cool. It's kind of like we mentioned before that the fish, people think they go deep in the summer to get in cooler water. They're not really regulated by it thermally like that. They're they're more where their food are. Right. Or where their food is. So. Right. If the food's up shallow, they'll be up shallow. They're not afraid of that warmer water. Yeah. When uh, that first, like the first day that Pierre didn't have school from COVID two years ago, I, you know, we're kind of rutting around and, and my daughter's done with school and it's 10 o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, oh gosh, what, this is going to be a long spring, you know, and what do you want to do? And she's like, well, you know, can we go fishing? I'm like, all right. So we went down on Sharp and threw out, you know, a couple of crappie rigs and caught a couple of white bass and, and it was still fairly early. God, it was about this time of year, you know, and and uh, caught a couple white bass and I caught one really nice walleye and one nice sauger and we were getting ready to go home and we're packing the stuff up and I hear my daughter yell and one of my rods is just it's gone I mean it's going and I had my yellow lab with me and she jumped in and went out and grabbed it and it was 20 yards off the shore but it's only three four feet deep you know and she's pulling it back and she's swimming and that fish pulled and she spit out the rod and it just took off and she just looked at it and went <laughs> so I go out there, I jump in, and I'm up to my neck in water, and I finally grab it, and I bring it back. And it was about an 18-pound cat. And it was so wrapped up in, in my daughter's uh, crappie rig. And it was, I was just, what in the world am I going to do with this thing? And like, I'm freezing, of course, and I get in, and I just throw it in the cooler. You know, I'm like, what? Just whatever. And we get home, and I take a picture of it, and I jump in the shower, and I get out. And my wife's like, I'm not eating that thing. You know, there's no way. So I think it'll be pretty good. And I, I cleaned it and, you know, it, it was a legitimate 18 pound catfish. And I had a bunch of friends over and we ate that thing and it was really good. I mean, it had to been ancient, but at the same time, I was like, God, I don't want to keep it. But the hooks were down in there and it was all tore up and I was going to freeze to death. So, I don't know, just those, those kind of stories, you know, I, I mean, you see somebody, a, a kid holding a eight, 10 pound catfish. I mean, man, it could just as well be an eight pound walleye, you know, a big oh, yeah. fish is a big fish, mm -hmm. you know. Um, talked a little bit about underutilized fisher, fisheries and stuff, and we all agreed we're not going to give any, any, uh, any secret spots out. But let's talk about, we're talking about other species and, and kind of expanding other than just walleyes. If you started from Chamberlain on a perfect day and started hitting, you know, these, the river and then some of these impoundments, how many species of fish do you think you could re realistically catch? <laughs> in a day in this country. I'll give you walleyes and sauger. That's the easy ones, right? Yeah, so walleye and sauger. Um, if you're going off the river, you're talking bluegill, crappie, largemouth. Um, back on the river, you got smallmouth, um, catfish. If you're lucky, you, you might get a flathead catfish. Right. We have a few of them out here. Can um, we throw white bass in there? Yeah, white bass. Um, so Yellow we're perch. up to nine. Yellow perch, 10, 
And then we can start talking about the other fish. Right, gold yeah. eye. We got gold eye, freshwater drum, the not so loved common carp. Right. There, is there many sturgeon down in this neck? You know, like in in sharp and even in Oahe, you got you got pallids and shell. Obviously, pallids would be a tough one, but shovel nose. Yeah, shovel nose would be tough. We don't seem to have quite as many in Francis Case as they do up in Sharp, mm-hmm. but but there is some around. So if if you're getting lucky to catch a flathead, you might get lucky right. to catch a a shovel nose sturgeon. Um, and then down below Fort Randall Dam, that there are pallid sturgeon. Right. That's um, that's where we have the most of them in the state right now. Right. So. Yeah, it's just we were talking about that in the office. Like, I wonder where you, what area you could go and probably catch the most. You know, realistically, have a chance to catch them. This is probably as good a bet as any. Yeah, and, and we forgot about the the elusive paddlefish too. Right. And sauger. Right. Yeah, it's just 15, something interesting. Fifteen. Or Fifteen. So. I don't know. Yeah. If yeah. everything's biting. Right. That'd be a cool day, really. I'd, Let's talk. Let's talk about paddlefish. I touched on it a little bit earlier. Jason, you've done how many? How many years have you worked with, on the paddlefish spawn? And uh, since nineteen ninety-five. Ninety-five. Yeah, just talk about that fishery and, and what goes into it. I mean, you and I, you and I have spent some time together shooting video and talking about it. But just talk about that paddlefish a little bit. Yeah. So, well, with the impoundment of the Missouri River, of course, the habitat changed. Uh, the hydrograph changed, you know, and it, it kind of uh, kind of screwed up the paddlefish, the natural system that that they lived in, and and so they had some paddlefish snag fisheries way back in the in the 50s and 60s, and they saw numbers drop drop fast because there was no natural production on them, and so starting I want to say sometime in the 70s, they started sporadically stocking paddlefish in in Lake Francis case um, that w- that was with some limited success and then beginning in the early 1990s they started stocking a larger fingerling size and they saw really good success with the stockings with that and so after years and years of stocking um, and a lot of discussions we decided that the sportsman's dollars that we were putting into this program to, to spawn fish and raise them in the hatchery and, and stock them back in the lake um, we're going to try to have a limited season mm-hmm. to give some things back to the anglers and let them enjoy that that fishery. And so that's kind of how that all came about. Um, but typically every spring we we go out and we net adult paddlefish, and then we take them to the hatchery in Yankton, Gavin's Point Hatchery. The Fish and Wildlife Service works with us on that project. We take the eggs and we uh, in the milt and we fertilize the eggs and. And uh, they raise the, the fish in the ponds at the hatchery till about uh, early fall in September. Then they stock them back in the lake. Right. So we got two paddlefish fisheries currently. We got up on Lake Francis Case, or down on Lake Francis Case, and then on, on sorry, and then down at Gavin's. How big, you know, when we're out on the boat and you bring in a, you know, fifty-inch fish. What's the age on that thing? Well, like any other fish, they grow relatively quickly when they're younger, and then as they reach sexual maturity, that they put more energy into growth than they or into production of eggs right. and and milt than they do into growth, and so their growth slows down. But 
You know, a 50-inch paddlefish, I don't know if you're talking from the tip of the bill to the tip yeah, of the Yeah, I guess. I was thinking <laughs> angler from the eye to the tail. but Eye to the tail? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a fairly large fish, mm -hmm. and it could be anywhere from 20 to 40 or 50 years old. It could be, you know, I... I, we don't see the real large fish like we used to see anymore, the, those 150, 160-pound fish. Um, those were ones we believed were trapped in the reservoir when they dammed it sure. up back in the 50s. Um, I think those fish are probably gone by now. And so the ones we're seeing are just remnants of of stockings from years ago. Sure. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if we, like below Gavin's, we've done some age and growth work, and if we see... A fish down there that's oh 35 to 45 inches long it, it's anywhere from 9 to 15 years probably sure yeah those are those are cool fish and those tags are especially up here I mean I think I had one the first two years and I am I don't know if I've had one <laughs> yeah yeah the average size on Francis case is definitely a lot bigger yeah average size is around that 40 to 50 pounds um, it's a big freshwater fish. Yeah, but we're we see a lot of hundred pound plus fish being caught every year, mm -hmm. or most years anyway. Yeah. And and the the interesting thing about that is you know it's a snagging season and you put this big weight on, and I I snagged down in you know down in Yankton a couple times and never really realized that those fish are up high, you know they aren't down on the bottom they're up high and that's where you're snagging them and it just kind of blew my mind when I got down here for the first time. These guys are like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm letting it sink. No, you got to get it out there and then bring it back fast. And It's just a cool fishery, and, and that, that opportunity and that tag is probably just as coveted as some of the deer tags anymore. Oh, for sure. Yeah, what, any tag that it takes five years to get. Right. I think that's how long it took me to get my last one. Right. Yeah. Well, what did I miss, boys? Um I think we covered most most everything. Um, just you know, it, it, it is interesting though that this is the time of year, you know. And I know your guys' phone is starting to ring a little bit, and people are calling and stuff. But I've definitely seen my phone and email and, and texting going up at people asking about fishing forecasts and stuff. And, and um, down here, these reservoirs, we aren't going to have as much of the access issues as we might have up on Oahe and stuff, though, right? It's more of a pass through. Yeah, Lewis and Clark is is managed completely as a flow through reservoir. Um, it, it's used to kind of buffer the the daily fluctuations coming out of Fort Randall Dam. Um, Francis Case is is managed a little bit for storage, um, but a lot of how the water management is 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 based on capturing um, springtime or wintertime runoff. So each fall, it's it's the water levels are lowered about 18 feet down at the dam, and then starting around December or Christmas time, they start bringing it back up, and and we're normally back to our our normal pool around May 1st. Um, it, it 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 can vary a little bit, you know. It might be April, it might be mid-May by the time we're back to normal, but yeah, we we don't expect any kind of access issues. That's good. It is interesting, you know, like Oahe, you know, can drop so far in the spring and, and, you know, during that spawning time. And there's always been those fights of, hey, we need that water for the smelt spawn or we need that water for the walleye spawn and stuff. And then, you know, I talk to you guys and you're like, we don't deal with any of that. That's 
because those fisheries are so so different, even though they're connected and close by, that um, it's just kind of interesting. So cool. Well, when the fish bite, I expect a call and they start biting it. I never get one, but I'll expect one from you guys. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, maybe maybe this will be the year. Right. I uh, I went by a few of my favorite little impoundments that you guys are in charge, and they were open. And I was thinking about digging the kayak out and going out there and sliding in on one of these nice days and being out there when there's nobody else out there. So, Cool. Well, thanks for your time, boys. Uh, I appreciate it. And we'll, I'm betting we'll be talking to you next year at this time again, too. So Sounds good. Anytime. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Appreciate it. all right good stuff from chris and jason uh, those two dudes are super interesting if you ever want to see anything more on paddlefish and how uh us and the u.s fish and wildlife service spawns and collects paddlefish eggs there's a cool youtube video that I did with Jason Sorensen and the crew a few years back. Uh, it's cool to handle those prehistoric fish. And uh, I guess the biggest thing is get out and go fishing when the weather's nice and stuff. I know up in the Northeast, you're still locked in with some ice, but there's safe ice, so go out and ice fish. But, uh, you know, find some open water and, and pick a nice day and go drown to smelt if you want a northern fish or just go fish from shore and, and make some memories. Um, turkey season coming up soon. I uh, hope you got your tags. Remember to get your mentor tags and take a new person out turkey hunting. That'll be good stuff. Um, and really encouraging folks to get on our Go Outdoors system. If you haven't already, there's a couple extra steps you got to do to get logged on on the initial your initial time. But then I think once you get in there and start messing around with it and kind of searching around, you're, you're going to like it. It's a one-stop shop. Now you can get park reservations and your licenses and, and entry park entrance tags and all that stuff in one shot and uh go out and do that before you know the deer deer license draws and the elk draws coming up and stuff if you haven't done that i'm really encouraging or we're really encouraging you to go out and mess around with that system and and uh just get familiar with it so we will see you probably next week talking to our peer office fishery staff talking about Oahe sharp and the fisheries in that area so thanks for listening and uh, we'll see you down the road. Yeah.